Chapter 3 of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Autobiography Memories and Experiences, Volume 1 by Moncure D. Conway. Chapter 3 The rod was spared in our home as well for servants as for the white children. My parents regarded colored people as immortal souls, and we were trained to treat them with kindness. Every Sunday an hour was found for us, white and black children together, to be taught by my mother the catechism and listen to careful selections from the Bible. In some way this equal treatment of slaves got out and some officious men came with a report that my mother was teaching negroes to read, which was illegal. It was not true, but it was prudent to avoid even the suspicion of such an offense in the house of a magistrate, so the mixed teaching ceased. But the cause was kept from me, and about that time I taught one of our slaves, Peter Humpstead, about twenty, to read why he asked to have his lessons in the wood cellar i did not understand i might add that my lessons were not given gratuitously peter knew my weakness for fine clothes and contracted to give me a splendid necktie duly paid and by me displayed the first mannish thing i ever wore i have a dim remembrance that this finery brought some ridicule on me, and was not enjoyed long, but Peter Humstead learned to read. My mother's prayers were earnest and even eloquent. In the prayer meetings in our basement, she was always called on after my father to pray, and in his absence she conducted family prayers. Her voice was sympathetic, and her command of language wonderful. Had she been born a Quaker, she would probably have been a famous minister in that society. In the Methodist love feasts, where the experiences uttered were usually cant, my mother opened her heart with almost passionate fervor. A large room was set apart in our house as the preacher's room, and it was rarely unoccupied. The solemn black garb, white cravats, and broad brims of these guests impressed me. Two of the most pious were discovered to be impostors, but the majority were honest, hell-fearing men. Once there stopped with us for a day or two a preacher dressed in extremely coarse homespun and without any buttons, John Hersey by name. Some of us could not help laughing at his appearance, but he told my father that in early life he had run into debt, which he was endeavoring to pay. He was determined to limit himself to the barest necessities of life, both as to food and clothing, until he repaid every cent. In later years I heard him, still in homespun garb, preach an eloquent sermon in Georgetown. The Reverend Jesse White had the look and reputation of a saint. One day, when he was seated with my father in our front hall, a man rushed up the steps and said to Mr. White, 
I am grievously tormented by the devil. I beseech you, cast him out of me. The meek minister said, My friend, I have no such power. Oh, yes, you have, said the possessed one. You have only to order him. He will obey. The preacher, by an impulse, cried, I charge you, come out of him. Thank you, said the man. The devil has quite left me. And with a bow, went off smiling. Our Falmouth folklore was mostly of the familiar kind. One or two houses haunted, an occasional ghost reported, but the serpent lore impressed me because of my firm faith that the devil was a serpent. A horsehair left in a tub of rainwater would turn to a snake. A snake could charm a bird into his mouth. Any deficiency of milk in a cow was ascribed to the cow-sucker, or black snake. At Tappahannock, lower down on the river, an approaching defeat of the Democratic Party at an election was heralded by a phantom scow floating on the river with negroes singing and dancing on it. Iron rings were worn to cure fits. George Washington mentions without comment the use of an iron ring at Mount Vernon to cure Patsy Custis. Various herbs were used to cure warts, the herb after application being always buried. Once the seventeen-year locusts swarmed in our woods, devouring the green tissue on every leaf. On each wing was the letter W, betokening war, and their united cry of Pharaoh prophesied the plagues of Egypt. The locusts came near enough to the Mexican War and to the deadly spotted-tongue plague that scourged our county to appear prophetic. But the greatest sensation was caused by the comet of 1843. There was a widespread panic, similar, it was said, to that caused by the meteors of 1832. Apprehending the approach of Judgment Day, crowds besieged the shop of Mr. Petty, our preaching tailor, invoking his prayers. Methodism reaped a harvest from the comet. The Negroes, however, were not disturbed. They were, I believe, always hoping to hear Gabriel's trump. Footnote. My cousin, Augusta Daniel, told me of one woman who declared in meeting that she had heard Gabriel's trump. There were murmurs of incredulity, and she began to weep at having her word doubted. But the preacher said, After all, brethren, perhaps Gabriel did give the poor sister a tutor to. End footnote. Belief in witchcraft prevailed among the poor whites and negroes, but I never heard of a colored witch or wizard. Our Falmouth witch was one Nancy Calamese, who lived alone in a small shanty just outside the town. I remember her as a small, thin woman of sixty, her sharp features and a hunted look in her large gray eyes. She could hardly appear in the village without being shunned, and at length the suspicion that she had bewitched several persons 
caused her to be railed at and stoned on the street nancy had a sharp tongue for her pursuers she drank pretty deeply but she was never charged with any crime and her means of subsistence were unknown no one could tell whence she came and there was about her a distinction of some kind as compared with the poor whites which seemed to the latter uncanny the persecutions of this woman excited the sympathy of my mother who now and then visited her and told me that she found everything neat in nancy's shanty a pretty flower-bed behind it and the woman herself fairly intelligent finally however life became intolerable for poor nancy calamese one afternoon on my return from school i saw a crowd gazing out on the rappahannock river where nancy was steadily waiting on and presently perished her history was never known my parents were impatient with contemporary superstitions there was a large house long uninhabited on a hill across the river where our servants said they had seen lights in the night i mentioned this to my father and he said jack-o'-lantern probably and went on with his papers leaving me to wonder who jack was and what kind of lantern he had that night i suffered the nightmare of being seized by a goblin shut up in a lantern and hurried through the air to the lonely house it was too terrible to be forgotten but i was ashamed to admit it we were taught that belief in ghosts and witches was vulgar and i sometimes wonder what my parents thought of biblical ghost lore and the witch of endor an instance occurred of a young lady's belief that she had committed the unpardonable sin and it was spoken of by my parents as insanity a very pious methodist sister was said to have attained entire sanctification an experience recognized by methodism but my parents much as they esteemed her were silent and i feel certain that they regarded it as morbid watch night was kept in the basement of our house a minute before midnight of the departing year we all knelt the servants with us and kneeling until after midnight sang the new year's hymn whose opening verses are come let us anew our journey pursue roll round with the year and never stand still till the master appear his adorable will let us gladly fulfill and our talents improve by the patience of hope and the labor of love some years later we kept watch night in the church but the occasion and the hymn never affected me so much as when we knelt and sang in our basement although my father took his methodism so seriously he had a fine sense of humor and many a hearty laugh did he give us by his descriptions of droll incidents at meetings at one of the revivals he saw a man stagger a little as he went up to the mourner's bench to be prayed for beckoning mr petty my father said take that man away he's drunk petty replied indeed brother conway if we don't get some of these people when they're drunk we'll not get them at all 
another story related to a little place called white oak in which it was said not one sober man or woman could be found and where all sins were considered customary at length however the methodist preachers assisted perhaps by the comet got up a revival at white oak after which a congregation was organized but there was difficulty about appointing officers every convert proposed had been notorious as a drunkard rogue or wife-beater after several had been set aside a man arose and said brethren it appears to me that if the lord wants a church at white oak he's got to take the materials to be found at white oak this suggestion prevailed and white oak began a reformation that ultimately improved it off the earth but while my parents were amused by its grotesque side it was i am certain mainly the work of methodism among these humble and often laughable people that they valued methodism was a temperance organization and the only one in our county it was the only active society for charity and humanitarian effort it had little or nothing to do with dogmas but a great deal to do with morality and in stafford county it mainly rested on my parents and my three methodist aunts none of these realized the way in which i was taking these things to heart nor the extent to which i was burdened by the otherworldliness of our negroes i was encouraged to take healthy recreations swimming fishing skating shooting and restrained only from cards and dancing but i was sadly serious i clung to the preachers to my elders and sang hymns about the vileness of a world i had not entered and about death the world is all a fleeting show for man's delusion given it smiles of joy it tears of woe deceitful shine deceitful flow there's nothing true but heaven i'm a pilgrim and i'm a stranger i can tarry i can tarry but a night our life is a dream our time as a stream glides swiftly away oh tell me no more of this world's vain store the time for such trifles with me now is o'er hark from the tomb a doleful sound my ears attend the cry ye living men come view the ground where you must shortly lie the great function of the year was the methodist camp meeting my father always had the largest tent in the selected forest and for over a week there was a grand barbaric picnic the tents were pitched around a large amphitheater where there were benches for several thousand under arches of small lamps stretched between the trees immediately in front of the platform on which sat a score of preachers there was a large enclosure for the mourners there were three sermons daily each followed by a prayer meeting but the great scene was at night when there occurred a pitched battle with satan to rescue souls the loud excited singing of the throng was thrilling the preachers walked about the platform crying 
Now is the accepted time. Call upon him while he is near, etc. Brethren went up the forest aisles, watching for any sign of emotion, any bowed head, and one after another, under conviction, was led up to the throne of grace to be welcomed by shouts of glory, hallelujah. Every now and again, amid the loud pleadings of prayer, there was a scream out of some terrified heart, some pale face falling back in swoon or trance. The crowd of curious gazers pressed forward to see. My own curiosity often led me to go behind the platform. There, the negroes received such crumbs of grace as fell from the white penitent's table. Nevertheless, with these crumbs they had a paradise unknown to white dives. They had few or no mourners, all of them being long ago converted, and all now in ecstasy. Their spiritual clock always struck noon. But dives came to dislike these camp meetings. They involved the demoralization of farm service for the week, and religious people remarked another kind of demoralization among the whites. There was a large flow of whiskey on the outskirts, a good deal of horse trading, and the increase of piety was said to be purchased by an increase of immorality. I have my doubts about this, and on the whole have rather regretted the gradual extinction of the happy festival. It has always remained with me a pleasant reflection that the simple-hearted negroes escaped the dogmatic discords of our region. As we were remote from all heresies, Catholic or Protestant, the only burning issues were sprinkling versus immersion and free will versus predestination. The Baptists were predestinarian. The Methodists represented free will. But the Negroes were both Baptist and Methodist. They clung to immersion and clung to the Methodist hymns and ecstasy. Thus did each colored brother and sister easily reconcile the irreconcilable. The immersion of the colored people was always a picturesque and affecting scene. Dressed in white cotton, fabric of which their chain was made, they moved under the Sunday morning sunshine across the sands opposite our house to the river, and there sang gently and sweetly. There was no noise or shouting. The rite was performed by a white minister. After immersion, each was embraced by his or her relatives. There was more singing, and the procession moved slowly away. White converts were immersed separately from the Negroes, but they were few, and the performance was by no means so impressive. No cruelty to Negroes occurred in the houses or on the farms of any families in which we were intimate. Servants were sometimes flogged, but with no more severity and with less frequency than white children. A certain man who dishonored the name of a reputable family by lashing his slave so severely that he soon after died, so shocked the county that the tradition of that manslaughter remains to this day. I remember well my father's efforts to bring the manslayer to justice. 
unavailing because only slaves witnessed the tragedy fury rarely overbore the slave owner's need to keep his property in good condition the only instance of brutality that i personally witnessed was at stafford courthouse where a coarse man had charged four female slaves with an attempt to poison him there was no real evidence and some believed that it was an effort to obtain for the elderly and unremarkable women the payment the county must make if they were executed when the women were acquitted their owner took them out to his cart bound them by their wrists to the back of it ordered the driver to go on tore down the dresses from their backs and lashed them with a rawhide until the cart disappeared on the road a crowd witnessed this scene and though there were mutterings none could interfere the horror made an ineffaceable impression on me though i was too young to generalize on it deeply engraved also on my memory is a small prison-like building in the center of falmouth known as captain pickett's where negroes were sent to be flogged the captain was the town constable and one of his functions was to whip negroes when their owners so ordered although warned by my parents against loitering about captain pickett's this whetted my curiosity and with other boys i heard the imploring tones of the sufferers i remember the captain silently walking up and down in front of his grim house with his iron-gray hair and beard never smiling never uttering a word from his compressed lips when i had left falmouth and thought of him as the local figurehead of an evil system i heard of his suicide it was many years before i could do the poor captain justice as a matter of fact the old constable was simply presiding at the last relic of the whipping post the long dilapidated stocks were still visible near the churchyard where they had stood at the door of the cedar church the whipping post had hid itself in the constable's office but i now have reason to believe that in that very den many a stripe fell gently and that captain pickett hung himself simply because the shame of being an official negro whipper became intolerable the whipping post ended with captain pickett the last tidings i had of his building was that it was used as a storehouse of federal bombs footnote a man belonging to a wealthy citizen murray forbes had to be flogged on some complaint of a neighbor mr forbes intimated to captain pickett his hope that he would be merciful pickett said mr forbes there is not a more tender-hearted man in falmouth than i am the negro told his master captain pickett told me to holler and i hollered but the cowhide fell on the post End footnote. although the slave dealers gathered their harvests in our region it was in large part surreptitiously it was socially disreputable for a man to sell slaves to them or indeed to part the members of families on his estate further than by hiring them to neighbors hiring day in falmouth was not often marked by unhappy scenes 
as the increase of slaves in every homestead made it more comfortable for many of them to find new homes the troubles arose when the death of some gentleman in debt necessitated the sale of his property the word slave was not used we spoke of free negroes and servants those were the happy days of inconsistency our fourth of july orators talked grandly of the enormity of taxation without representation and the right of every man to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness but the bondage of millions of dusky human beings was never thought of as a thing even to be explained in those days for myself i did not know our servants were slaves and dare say i repeated in the kitchen my favorite school declamation ending give me liberty or give me death also i have a vague remembrance of envying the little blacks their greater freedom most of them had nothing to do but roam and play my brother peyton and i were on affectionate terms with the servants they helped us in all our little projects such as raising poultry and pigeons considerable patches of ground were given us on the inglewood farm where we competed as to which could raise the finest melons we had varieties of watermelons and muskmelons which we sold at high prices to our father and at table showed our high appreciation of their excellence the only particular pet i ever had was an ugly duckling it was wounded by a rat and had to be killed and i was so heartbroken that i never ventured to have another animal pet my affections were lavished on my little sister mildred five years younger than myself and our tender relation to each other remains unbroken by the eventualities of life i won some distinction among falmouth boys for skill in making willow whistles and playing on them and for plumping marbles i also had several other fair accomplishments especially in making tiny mill wheels in imitation of that which turned my father's cotton factory but i was not popular among my comrades i was homely was not spirited and was a poor creature besides my handsome and dashing brother peyton always ready to wrestle or fight things i hated i worshipped rather precociously the beautiful ladies of falmouth and numerous aunts and cousins from the country of whom some were always visiting us i did their errands and attended on them with eagerness and they were so gracious to me that i cared little for the boys moreover i was beginning to form friendships with people met in story-books much as i disliked playground squabbles i found it pleasant to assist at the slaughter of dragons it was an era in my childish life when i journeyed with christian to the celestial city past apollyon and other foes not yet belonging to fairyland by fairy tales in the child's own book by the arabian nights by the pilgrim's progress dreams were built on the stuff of me i was surrounded with a sleep a source of dreams 
and my little life was rounded out thereby. If I could have found the Bible, as I did the Arabian Nights, among the old volumes, mainly medical, shelved in our bedroom, they had belonged to Grandfather Daniel's library, as an unknown book, perhaps I should have found equal delight in it. But the sanctity attached to it, the duty of getting it by heart, the daily impressed belief that it concerned my salvation, made it a sealed book. Joseph and his brethren, Moses and the bulrushes, Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, were all pale beside Aladdin, Ali Baba, and the rest, amid whom fancy could roam with free wing. The Bible was associated with blue and red tickets convertible into other religious books. At Sunday school, a certain number of scripture verses recited from memory were rewarded with a blue ticket. A certain number of blue tickets secured a red one. A certain number of the red, if I recall the colors correctly, enabled the holder to acquire any volume he might select from prize shelves prettily supplied by the Methodist book concern. I began with Genesis and memorized straight on, omitting nothing, except perhaps long genealogies, and this was continued for years. I do not remember having been prevented by any teacher from reciting the obscene passages, and I was too Arcadian to discover anything indecent in the Bible. The Hindus say, He that has no wound may touch poison. There was a little book in our house entitled Keeper in Search of His Master, the story of a lost dog's suffering from hunger and maltreatment, over which I shed burning tears. From it, I gained some sense of the feelings of animals, and from the tales of Maria Edgeworth, I learned more about the value of kindliness and generosity than I got from the Bible. I think the first thing that impressed me in the Bible was the snake in Eden. My horror of snakes was indiscriminate. The first duty of man on seeing that crawling devil was to kill it. Dr. Adam Clark, in his commentary, a favorite book with my father, suggested that before its sentence to crawl, the serpent was a kind of ape. My father told the anecdote of a preacher who cried, If you don't repent, Dr. Clark's ape will catch you. He was amused, but I was shocked by the theory and the laughter. Levity was out of place in such a grave matter. Traveling circuses sometimes visited Fredericksburg, and once, once only, I was permitted to go. What was my horror on seeing a young woman handle a huge serpent affectionately? Here were Eve and the devil. I knew what was meant by my father's dislike of sinful amusements. My consciousness took his side, and I never petitioned to go to another circus. Another time, my father startled me. He was conversing with some preacher and said, I do not think Solomon's song ought to be in the Bible at all. 
what my feeling was i cannot of course remember but the incident stands in my memory after sixty years cousin elizabeth daniel daughter of united states justice daniel sometimes came to us from richmond for a visit she was distinguished for her intelligence and culture no doubt she remarked the interest with which i listened to her conversations with my mother which were chiefly on authors dickens scott byron sothi moore and others and took notice of me when i was about ten this cousin after one of her visits requested me to write to her so began a correspondence which continued several years i developed some thoughts by the effort to express them and exactment of statement by the extreme pains i took in writing to the accomplished lady who honoured me with her attention above all some faith in my homely and shy self was engendered in me by her extended letters these were not condescending nor patronizing but written as to a friend being herself an episcopalian she never wrote on doctrinal topics but generally about books probably i was just a little secularized by this interchange of thoughts unconnected with religion also i found the methodist regime sufficiently elastic to admit not only the luxuries of our table but beautiful moonlit evenings on the rappahannock the ladies carried their guitars the gentlemen their flutes there silently crouched beside some affectionate aunt or cousin i learned moore's melodies by heart and old scotch songs never to be thought of thenceforth as mere poetry but as my heart's honeydew late in life in printing something about virginia i spoke of the crystal rappahannock i learned that some aged people there regarded the river as normally muddy and that indeed might be expected of a stream coming from the mountains and at falmouth dashing over falls all i can say is that in early boyhood i used to see sweet faces and pure skies in its waters and feel certain that it was then the crystal rappahannock the great and sensational events of our boyhood brother peyton and myself were two visits to richmond what splendor on the first visit we stayed at the house of justice daniel who was at home and he and his wife she was a daughter of edmund randolph first attorney-general of the united states and their daughters elizabeth and anne and their brother peter were gracious and charming to us our cousin john moncure daniel then studying law in richmond took us about to show us the capital and other notable things richmond was thenceforth the city called beautiful and it remained so after a subsequent visit to our young cousins in the home of uncle travers and aunt susan daniel there was a soupçon of worldliness there too refreshing to our little methodist souls for they taught us a card game seven up we had never seen a pack of cards before 
and it was many a year before I saw another. Public amusements were unknown to Falmouth. Once, when a band of buy-a-broom girls in picturesque costumes went from door to door with their little white brooms, it was as exciting as an opera. I can see them now with their strange faces, their graceful gestures, and hear their song, Buy a broom, buy a broom, buy a broom, buy a broom, O oh, buy of the wandering Bavarian a broom. They carried off our pocket money and left a lot of worthless sticks terminating with shavings, but also left a melody that I can sing today. Once we had in Fredericksburg astronomic lectures with magic lantern from Dr. Lardner. Another course was from Dr. Goldby of London on zoology. In one of these he made a statement about rats that I never forgot. He said the rat had human-like tastes. If two jars of preserves, one sweetened with loaf sugar, the other with brown, were left near rats, they would consume the loaf sugar preserves before touching the brown sugar jar. My idea of the rat was revolutionized. I should not myself be so particular. Now and then a famous singer stopped for one or two evenings and sang in Fredericksburg Town Hall. Henry Bishop was long remembered, and I almost shudder now in recalling his dramatic rendering of the maniac and one or two other thrilling compositions of his the tournament was still an institution in our neighborhood it took place annually in a long lane on the spotsylvania side of the river the young men from various counties mounted on their decorated steeds tilted at the suspended ring and the victor received his wreath kneeling from the queen of love and beauty surrounded by her maids of honor on a splendid platform these were the beautiful and refined ladies of northern virginia it was an important social event and the chief relic of the ancient fair and horse race for which our region was once famous but on which the killjoy preachers had frowned the puritanical spirit steadily blighting the gaieties of old virginia did not long spare the tournament and the annual ball End of chapter three